This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thanks so much for tuning in. Peek behind the curtain. It is officially summer in Atlanta. Uh, the humidity and the heat combined to drape the city in soup. It feels like walking through soup, so I am very, very glad to be here inside our air-conditioned studio. My name is Ben. My name is Noel. Uh, the shipping container is icy cool today, uh, and outside it is sort of, there's this miasma, this sort of funk, this patina of awful hot, sweaty grossness that does kind of envelop the city. And it happened overnight, didn't it? It just happened overnight. Yeah, it permeated, uh, it permeated this fair metropolis of ours. I always forget about how dire the situation becomes uh, when we hit summer in Atlanta. And, you know, this may mean that we're in here recording uh, more episodes. We do want to start the show uh, with a big shout out to our guest super producer, Ramsey Ramjams Yunt. So everybody give him a fine hello. Do we get, does he get a, a sound effect? That sounded it, good. Yeah, it was very good. <laughs> so yeah, good. I like it. And of course, this does not mean that we will ever forget our wonderful, uh, the, our, our third amigo, right? Mm -hmm. uh, super producer, Casey Pegram. Gone but not forgotten. Gone, I say, but gone where, Ben? Uh, we were talking about this. So I have a theory. 
Every year or so, Casey disappears. And in France, someone else reappears, a very different person who happens to look a little bit like our dear friend Casey Pegram. Uh, This guy, we imagine, is a member of the criminal underbelly of Paris, uh, known only by the name Le Bouche. Yeah. And uh, he dons a completely different getup in the form of a very slick-looking leather jacket, a single dangly cross earring. On his left ear. On his left ear. And sometimes he uh, wears fingerless gloves and rides around on one of those cool little mod motorbikes, you know, Uh, that you see uh, in all the— in the pictures? Yeah, and uh, we strongly suspect that he may have one or more secret families. <laughs> it's true. None of this, we can neither confirm nor deny any of this. We are wildly speculating It's here. all true, though. Put the pieces together, people. All right, we're going to have to let Casey uh, have his day in court here and defend himself. But, you yes. know, Casey's not here. We're joined with Ramsey helping us uh, pick up the slack here Thanks, while Casey's Ramsey. doing his uh, double life. But that's not the only person that we have on the show today, is it, Ben? That's absolutely true. This is a special episode that I know we were both very excited about. Uh, we have in our network a brand new podcast uh, that we're we're all huge fans of, sincerely huge fans of, and it happens to be created by one of our close friends who you may have heard mentioned on our show or other shows before. Folks, let's give it up for Alex Williams, the brains behind the podcast we call Ephemeral, because that's the name of the podcast. Hi. <laughs> Alex makes us call it that just by virtue of having titled it and it being a very good title and a very fine podcast. Thank you for being here today. What a sir. flattering introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be well, here. Here's the thing. We've been working with you for quite some time now. We've kind of seen you grow and develop and become more and more of a badass in what the pros refer to as the podcast space. I'm making wild sure. gesticulating quote fingers when I say that. As you must. But you really have to. But here's the thing. You really took it to another level in terms of making not only a history podcast – but something that I, I refer to and I describe it to friends as something akin to like poetry meets sound collage meets music concrete meets history. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a really beautiful piece of work. And I'm just beyond uh, stoked that it's on our network and that you're the guy behind it. So we'd like to ask you. That was such a good pitch. <laughs> I don't know if I could pull that up, but that was great. That was good. Well, now it is your turn. So we'd like to ask you some questions about Ephemeral, about your your inspiration behind it. But first, yeah, with with that excellent description uh, that Noel just, just recited, what how would you describe it? How, how do you describe it when when someone's like, hey, what's this thing you're working on? I start stammering cool. and sweating, and I try to make it as concise as possible. I was thinking of a quick pitch in bed the other night. It's uh, something like a show about fleeting moments and the things they leave behind. Mm, I like that. Because that's what ephemera is, right? Mm. Ephemera is, 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 is sort of a remnant of a thing that no longer is around, I guess, kind of. Or the idea of things being ephemeral means that they're fleeting or that they're here today, gone tomorrow, but they do leave behind some kind of residue if you know where to look, right? Yeah, so the word itself is kind of tricky. Yeah. Uh, in the textbook, ephemera might just mean paper, Right, broadsides, tickets, uh, pamphlets for museums. Basically anything printed, hand-printed, you know, uh, printing press, computer-printed that wasn't meant to be saved. But then it gets into the issue of, like, how do you determine whether something was meant to be saved or not? Right, like, for instance, a train schedule from the early 1900s. Now the ones that are around are considered 
thing to be things that have historical value, right? But when they were printed, they were thought to have a definitive and very short lifespan or span of utility. One of the uh, really classic examples is uh, the stamp. The episode I'm working on that will come out Monday is about this. Well, Monday. That might that might not be the Monday. It'll come out on a Monday. It'll come out on a Monday. I don't know when this will come out. Uh, But a stamp is a really classic example, right? So. You've written a letter to your friend Noel, and you've stamped it, and you've put it in the, um, uh, in the mailbox, and he gets it, and he rips it open and reads the letter, and he's, you know, overwrought with emotion, whatever. He throws out, or hopefully recycles, the, uh, <laughs> and that's it. But, if, but Noel happens to have a great stamp collection, right. and I've sent him, you know, an uh, uh, inverted Jenny stamp from the 1930s, and so he is overwrought with emotion, not because of my great prose, but right. because – uh, this is a great addition to his stamp collection. Because he is a philatist or a philatist? Is, is that, that how it is? How's it, how it's pronounced? Yeah, P-H-I-L-A-T-I-S-T. Philatist. One who collects stamps. What's the root word of philatist? <laughs> Sorry. Could no. also be one who fillets. You know, that's what I would think. <laughs> a philatist. Because that's is... how the British pronounce fillet. They pronounce it fillet. Really? They do a hard T sound at the end of it. I always find that very interesting. Because sometimes the Brits seem like they really own the word, and sometimes they just feel like they're mispronouncing it just to be cute. cute. Sort of like <laughs> aluminum. Like, that's not the word, Brits. Come on. It's aluminum. You're adding syllables there's, in there that don't belong. There's letters added I, in yeah, that pronunciation. It feels, it feels yeah. as though that's the but case. With American English, to be fair, we can't really criticize the people who are doing it first. That's also fair, Ben. That if is, they want to add an extra PE on shop, then that's kind of their call. Uh, yeah, to answer that question about etymology, it's interesting because uh, it comes from French and Greek. So, uh, atelia means exemption from payment. The French philo means loving, so it's loving exemption from payment, which is Whoa. weird, right? No, but it's, it, it makes sense, but don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we can learn more about this. What, what, did you, what are you exploring on this episode concerning stamps? Oh, well, it's not – it's all over. It's, it's much <laughs> more than uh, – you know, one of the things that we're doing is actually taking the word apart uh, in, this, in this episode. Uh, so ephemera comes from uh, the root words epi, meaning honor of, like epicurious, epidermis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hemera, meaning day. It's like a Latin-Greek combination word. And so it starts being used by uh, people in uh, you know, the Age of Enlightenment, I guess, uh, to describe things that only last for a day. The mayfly, you know, uh, certain species of plants that flower and wither in a day. Uh, And then, you know, becomes with time more broadly used to describe things that don't last a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, or fleeting. And that's where you start getting into trouble because like in – in a, you know, the metrics of like a human life, you, you know, maybe like 100 years at best, something that doesn't last for long means something different than like geologically. Right. You yeah. know? <laughs> uh, like melting polar ice caps are ephemeral at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it, who was that philosopher who said all is ephemera? How have I never heard that? Maybe, I've never heard of that. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's a philosopher. It's uh, Marcus Aurelius. Oh, okay, there we go. I all is ephemeral, something. both what remembers and what is remembered. There we go. How have I never used that quote for something? Should I mean, be your tagline. You gotta, should be. Hang out on the show more often, man. I'm I'm full of uh, vaguely remembered one-liners from ancient philosophers. So I mean, I guess ephemeral ephemera by its nature is sometimes a little hard to describe, as is the show. It's not something that you can just encapsulate. 
escalate in a quick elevator pitch. So I put forth that we uh, listen to a little bit of a clip that can then set up a discussion. What do you say? Oh, sure. Oh, let's do the Collier Brothers. Yes, sir. As a kid, Franz Lidz's father would tell him scary stories before bed. Only these stories were true. My father was a scientist, engineer, inventor, who never really had much use for fairy tales. He preferred real-life grotesqueries to fiction. And so at bedtime, I would listen raptly to his urban horror stories. The most macabre tale was the one of the Collier brothers, the Hermit Hoarders of Harlem. In their four-story brownstone at the corner of 5th Avenue and 128th Street, the brothers sealed themselves up through the Great Depression, both world wars, and as Harlem shifted from a rich white suburb to a poor black slum. It was there in that brownstone that they amassed one of the world's legendary collections of urban junk. And in the end, the Collier brothers had 180 tons of junk stored in their brownstone. And so I get this image of this horror house. Things like tattered toys, Christmas trees, chandeliers, rusted bicycles, broken baby carriages, Ford Model T, moldering oak chests, 14 pianos, two-headed babies in formaldehyde, and newspapers. Hundreds of thousands of newspapers. It was a collection so extraordinary that their accomplishment, such as it was, confirms like a New Yorker's worst nightmare that they're crumpled people living in crumpled rooms with their crumpled possessions, the crowded chaos of the city refracted in their homes. It's not that New Yorkers hoard more than other people. It's that they have less room to hoard in. So the Collier brothers, C-O-L-L-Y-E-R, uh, were just as they're described in that clip, right? They're what we would call compulsive hoarders. Yeah, I, I don't know the history of the term hoarder if if we're applying a, a modern term anachronistically, but uh, yes, pack rats, I suppose, maybe is like an older term. Yeah. But hoarders, certainly. Could you tell us a little bit more about these brothers? So there's really one book on them, and it's, it's uh, by a fantastic, exquisite writer named Franz Lids, who grew up hearing, you hear his voice in the clip, he grew up hearing these stories from his father as, as bedtime stories, as scary stories, that he wouldn't tell. He would tell Franz these stories, but not, not Franz's sister, for whatever reason. I thought that was interesting. Ooh. And so when Franz grew up, he, he decided to learn everything that he could because no one had really written anything, you know, besides they were sort of part of the uh, urban legends of uh, Harlem and of New York. Well, to the point where it was almost a cautionary tale, like even the, the um, New York uh, fire department would, I believe they had a term that they used uh, called uh, Collier's Mansion Syndrome that referred to extreme instances of extreme clutter in apartments that were fire hazards. So it almost right. became, as the name of the book implies, called Ghosty Men. These these guys almost cast kind of a specter over this particular region uh, to the point where they were so embedded in the cultural and oral tradition storytelling like ghost stories that became this kind of cautionary tale almost, Right. Yeah, there's also a uh, there's also a, a racial element to that too. The two brothers Langley and Homer uh, moved with their parents from Manhattan to the budding community of Harlem 
in the 1890s, sort of an economic boom time. And Harlem is this new, rich, fancy suburb for people that, like, want to get out of dirty New York, you know, get out to the country. Gentrification, basically. Yeah. Well, as old as time. Well, it actually, uh, the economy crashes, Mm -hmm. and there's there's a big bust, and all of these rich families, like, move out, and there's all this empty space in Harlem. And then... There was overtly racist practices taken on by the landowners in like Harlem. Redlining that point. and stuff? Sure. L- literally things that were called like Negro surcharges. Mm-hmm. I mean, ah, I see. And they would take these big, beautiful um, brownstone mansions, like the Collier Brothers lived in a four-story brownstone mansion, and divide them up into, you know, six, seven, eight, nine rooms, mm-hmm. fill them up, overcharge African-Americans to live there. But so anyways, the... Collier Brothers were some of the few uh, white residents at that point, too. So legend is that neighborhood kids would chuck rocks at their windows and stuff and call them ghosty men, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. both referring to, like, their sort of creepy hermit never come out of the house. Is They're there someone dead in there? Boo Radley vibe. Yeah. And also, you know, perhaps a racial connotation. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents plus you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today you can get 40% off That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Sometimes to get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. We're nothing if not trailblazers here at Ridiculous History. And you know who also is a huge uh, iconoclastic challenger of the status quo, Ben? Who is that, Noel? I think you know. It's Hmm. Harry's. Yes, it's Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by all kinds of like slipshod, questionable products in the shaving industry. And they said, hey, you got to be the change. I was excited to try out the Winston set. It's an all-in-one package. You get some shaving cream. You get that great razor we're talking about. They also have deodorant. Yeah, I was about to say. Very helpful. I do really enjoy uh, their line of self-care products. Um, Richly lathering, skin-softening body washes and scents like redwood, wild lens, and stone. You want to know what a stone smells like? I've often wondered. Only you know you can. (laughs) So don't settle for the status quo, folks. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash history. Once again, that's harrys.com slash history for a $3 trial set. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. 
After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's this. There's always a catch. So when we heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, what's the catch? So we dug in, and after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Can you believe that? Mint Mobile's got a secret sauce, babies, and it is that they sell wireless service online, and by doing so, cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet, sweet, delicious savings directly onto you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's interesting, too, because... The, there's a parallel story this reminds me of, which is the Maisel's uh, film Grey Gardens, where it's, you know, this uh, mother and daughter that live in a very – they come from affluence. They live in this very similarly decrepit kind of mansion out in, you know, the burbs away from New York City, and they're completely kind of delusional and sort of exist in this strange bubble together. And that's sort of what ended up happening with the Collier brothers where they got to a point – I believe one of the – the uh, Homer, I believe – was like a child prodigy and like ended up getting some advanced degrees and did really well for himself for a time. And then they ended up just kind of withdrawing completely from society. And that's when the extreme hoarding that we're talking about started to begin. And that's also where the legend stuff kind of comes in, right? They really both were prodigies. Right. Homer uh, had advanced degrees from Columbia and like admiralty law. Mm-hmm. And like, yep. What even is that first of all? <laughs> I, admiralty, is it like maritime stuff? I mean, similar, I yes. And uh, I believe also one of them was quite a talented pianist. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, Langley uh, played at Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. and was followed by the, uh, the famous pianist of the time, Paderewski. But Paderewski, quote, got better notices than he. So <laughs> he gave up the piano. So, you know, it can always be discouraging to work that uh, grind of the music industry, regardless of the era in which you live. Let's let's talk a little bit about what uh, what this timeline of degradation looks like, because while they were infamous in their neighborhood, in their community, especially as uh, things started to get worse and worse for them mentally and, uh, you know, Homer got a stroke. Uh, they they started becoming more and more uh, reclusive, right? Uh, they didn't reach national attention until 1938 when the New York Times reported a false story about them and said that they had turned down an offer of 125 grand for their house. Yeah, there's a lot of strange sort of tabloid. Yeah. Uh, uh, New York had 11 newspapers in those days. There was lots of uh, <laughs> lots of things that sort of bounce around in an echo chamber, I suppose. So there's a lot of strange leads that you can follow with the Collier Brothers that you never really get an answer to. I should say that Homer quits his job. Langley stops playing the piano. Mm-hmm. Their father has moved back to Manhattan at some point. They stay in the house with their mother and really sort of start shuddering in in their, you know, in their sort of mid-20s. And then their mother passes away. She passes away and is buried in some sort of bizarre... Um, kind of cult-like ceremony. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just whisked out of a window one night and taken to a cemetery that's very far away on foot. And uh, it's never in the paper or anything. Mm-hmm. There's no obituary. Mm-hmm. She's, just, she's just gone one day and they wanted to keep it private, I suppose. After that, 
they more or less had no contact with the outside world. I believe Homer lost his eyesight and became essentially legally blind. Yeah. And he, uh, I'm going to illustrate it for you here, uh, had rheumatism and was doubled up like this with his knees below his chin. So for the description, just since we're an audio show, uh, Alex has assumed a somewhat fetal Esque position with uh, both legs folded up against his chest and his arms folded around holding his oh, legs. Oh, I made this part. I'm, that's all you? No, no, the <laughs> arms is just me. That's, that's my thing. Uh, but so poor, the poor guy, yeah. and in his 30s this happened, I believe, uh, wow. lost his eyesight. Langley became his brother's keeper. And, I mean, I, th- I really do think they, were, they loved each other and were very dutiful to each other. Uh, Langley devised this scheme— of feeding his brother a hundred oranges a day, yeah, in order to regain his eyesight. That's one of the the pull quotes we have left of Langley Collier, and uh, he saved him newspapers, hundreds of thousands of newspapers for when he could read again. For when he could read again, which is heartbreaking and and sweet. These newspapers obviously are yellowing, rotting. Sure, they're you know it's a four story humongous mansion. Langley made them into arches and tunnels and made an inner framework for their mansion out of newspapers and all kinds of other detritus. I mean, there's really no – I have incredibly long lists of of this stuff that I've I've pulled from different sources. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's see. Baby carriages? Rusted bikes? Because apparently Langley was – so Homer never saw it. Medical help for his rheumatism is that is that correct? Well, it's hard to say. It's hard to be absolute about anything. I mean, you know, like I said, we have the one book, and even there, there's there's things that we just will never know. Best we have for primary source because it sounds like a lot of the headlines of the time, the contemporary papers you mentioned, were just reporting stuff that would sell papers, huh? There was um, we don't actually don't talk about this in the episode, but there's one reporter, Helen Warden is her name. Langley sort of took a liking to her. She mm-hmm. was waiting outside of his, his apartment or outside of the Brownstone one day. Around midnight, he came out to make his nightly rounds. He would walk around the city and just drag a, a cardboard box with a string behind him yeah. and fill it up with just whatever stuff he, he came across, all kinds of things. Uh, she met him out there one, one night uh, at the, at the, outside the Brownstone. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of started unloading information on her. Uh, <laughs> she made mention of maybe visiting inside the house one day. And he's, and that's when he stopped and took off. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this is, this is interesting because around this, maybe around th- – this is after the time when uh, Langley began not going out until midnight, right? And then returning home with junk. Uh, I So one of the things that people familiar with this story – probably always mention it's certainly a thing that I, I bet producers would mention when they're talking about fictional adaptations uh will be the booby traps were the booby traps real that's a question people they were very to. real that's the big kicker i mean talking about this labyrinthine infrastructure of garbage essentially right i mean it was like walled up kind of every window every yeah. door yeah. full and, and they rigged it so that things would literally, if there were intruders or dare we say some sort of like Tomb Raider type situation, people would get got. <laughs> they just – they really wanted to be left alone. I mean there, there certainly is some some paranoia and some fear built into that collect, collecting habit. I, I heard that the booby traps were not a uh, 
not a thing that they had just come up with out of the blue. I heard it was a reaction to a number of attempted burglaries on the house when people began to think that they were hoarding not only junk, but also a financial fortune. So maybe there was some logic behind it? They were from a well-to-do family. At some point, they reportedly owned a large section of waterfront in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, Actually, their parents were like, cousins and uh oh that well to do yeah came over on the speedwell from <laughs> england yeah so i don't know if anyone ever tried to actually burgle their house mm-hmm. but there's certainly you know all their utilities got cut off one after the other so people from the city would try to get in their house police officers reasonably so. <laughs> absolutely and uh you know langley would occasionally just sort of reach his head out the window and scream go away mm-hmm. or they would just say nothing to them uh it's sort of Brings you right to this fateful day. Oh, are you talking about in 1947, March 21st, when police received an anonymous tip? That is the very, uh, that's the very day I'm talking about. You know, Noel, you're in this episode, in in the recreation of this that we do. Oh, that's right. (laughs) What did I do? I don't, it's been so long. You've been working on this for such a long time. (laughs) You've been doing recreations? I have. Uh, I'll get in on one. Absolutely, you will. Uh, You and Chuck are, uh, I, you know, maybe we'll, we'll leave it to the listeners to, to go seek yeah, it yeah, out. Yeah. But this, your voice and uh, our, our friend and colleague, Chuck Bryant, are uh, intertwined in this. That's awesome. Is this the one where the cops, like, yelling up at the window? I do remember this now. Okay, it's ringing a bell. <laughs> I'm so, not. No spoilers there. But, yeah, definitely. Uh, there. That's the kind of stuff you can expect in this show. It's not only, you know, it's not like this where it's me and Ben Gabin about history. It's a real experiential thing. And it's got a lot of these kind of cool production touches that really make it special. But what happened that day? So this is what we said, March 21st, 1947, that mm-hmm. fateful day. The police receive anonym, an anonymous phone call. Well, Charles Smith is the guy who gives the phone call. I've never, we yeah. we've never been able to follow up on Charles Smith. So. Alex did the uh, did the the air quotes there. <laughs> so I forgot that doesn't come through. <laughs> Charles Smith calls the police and reports a body at the Collier residence. Mm-hmm. Police show up. Police that have been there before know this place is booby trapped. So they proceed with caution, but they do break down the door and it is walled up with junk. They can't get through. They start axing their way through. And uh, v- a vapor of decay erupts out onto the street. A miasma, one might say. <laughs> Very much it's so. Sort of like Atlanta in the summer. It's all coming Very full much circle. So. Yeah. For basically a whole day, they're trying to get in different ways. It's all tunneled. They know that there's booby traps. Uh, things like feces and jars and bricks and nails and things like that. Really terrible, horrible things. Uh, that could very much injure a person. Someone breaks through, uh, uh, takes a ladder up to the second story, breaks through a window, and finds Homer Collier uh, doubled up as he always is in the corner, mm-hmm. but he's shriveled up and dead. How long had he been dead? Did it seem, for lack of a better word, fresh, or was the corpse like? Well, it. Uh, I'm not sure how soon they were able to determine it, but it had, it had been a while. Oh, wow. It had been a while. And then the real question was, Where's Langley? Mm-hmm. Has he killed his brother? Has he fled? And the search that went on uh, took weeks to find Langley Collier. Did they search the city or the house? It was an international search. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
like I said, 11 newspapers in New York at the time. So that echo chamber is going crazy. Boom, 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 People, boom. Langley Colliers are getting cited everywhere in different cities, in the Carolinas, in Chicago, on trains. Extra, extra. <laughs> there's a moment where a, a guy, there's a photograph that gets published in some paper of a guy literally holding a sign that says, I am not Langley Collier. Because <laughs> he's got kind of like a little beard and a little scruffy uh-huh. and, uh, and maybe looks a bit like one of the Collier brothers. So this is all clearly building to a conclusion of sorts. It turns out, however, that Langley Collier has not uh, crossed the Atlantic. He has not smuggled himself into Canada nor Mexico. Uh, where, where, where exactly is he? It's very tragic. He's found 10 feet from where his brother Homer was found, and it's, uh, it's, it's a number of weeks later. Uh, there was so much junk and they'd spent all this time clearing it, police and firefighters Mm -hmm. clearing it, and then eventually professional cleaning crews, uh, or clearing crews rather. Just 10 feet from his brother, he was uh, coming to bring him food and caught one of his own booby traps. Oh, no. Died there, and Homer died of neglect. He hadn't been fed. And so you end up with this, like what Noel was talking about earlier, this sort of bizarre, stranger-than-fiction tale that's embedded in folklore. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it reads a bit like a morality tale, but then I don't know what it is that the Collier brothers did that was so wrong. Like I think – I say in the episode, I mean probably they sh- should have paid their taxes and stuff, but mm-hmm. – It's also a very distinctly New York kind of story where it's like you're surrounded by people. Being in New York, every inch, every scrap of space is used up, is, you know, occupied. And you have no – like there's no sense of freedom kind of when you're walking around New York. Like it's a beautiful place and there's a lot going on, but it does have this claustrophobic feeling to it anyway. So the idea that – especially now, knowing we know about real estate prices and all that, that two men would just like – own this quite opulent setup and just allow it to become this absolute nightmare in that way. And it speaks to kind of the cluttered feeling of New York as a city. I I think it's a very interesting parallel there. And yes, is there anything wrong with being a hoarder or collecting things or any of that stuff? No, but this speaks to something I think a little bigger than that and that paranoia and the fact that these two were all they had and they got into this like, you know, kind of cycle of just not wanting anybody else to be in their lives at all. And yet they're living in the most populous place in the country where there's so much culturally going on and such an interesting time in history too, right? Franz Lids calls it a New Yorker's worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, You know, for for me, uh, this also calls to mind a documentary called Cropsy. Are you familiar with this? Cropsy is a documentary about an urban legend uh, regarding a boogeyman-like figure that stalks people in this uh, in the area surrounding a place called the Willowbrook Mental Institution, which had been closed down, uh, and in the in the course of this documentary, uh, they find that this boogeyman-like figure, this modern urban legend, is based on fact, and there is a real uh, th- there is a uh, a pearl of truth inside this this. Uh, Clamshell of scary urban folklore. <laughs> we got there. So uglier than a Joe Montana pass. I have seen that line. documentary, yeah. but I didn't remember it until you started talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's 
good. Yeah. It's a worthwhile documentary. I need to rewatch that. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now. Specifically, when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli history wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now, you've heard us talk a little bit about the Collier Brothers folks, but if you want to truly experience the story, which goes much deeper than what we've discussed here, uh, we highly recommend uh, that you get thee to your favorite podcast app of choice uh, starting on the 17th of June to talk out, uh, to check out the Collier Brothers story. However, there are other episodes of Ephemeral available now. Like as you're listening to this, please listen to the rest of our show before you listen to the next one. But uh, what what are some what are some topics that really uh, stuck out in your mind that you've you've published recently? Well, we've just published an episode uh, with interviews. Uh, Sarah Wasserman, who's a professor at the University of Delaware, is basically an ephemera teacher. Oh wow! Yeah, and so she's. The, peop- the person who can really answer some of the tough questions that we brought up at the top of the show. 
The episode before that is a, a study of Ottoman American diaspora music. <laughs> you might say, what? Immigrants from the collapsing Ottoman Empire in the early part of the 20th century, the teens, 20s, 30s, fleeing, uh, like people are from all over the world, coming to America and recording heart-stopping, beautiful music in New York, mostly, Mm -hmm. Chicago, for big labels like Columbia, Victor, and then also some small independent labels too. Uh, So music in Greek and Arabic that has largely almost entirely been forgotten. These records that were pressed in, 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 limited, in limited quantities mm-hmm. because of some sort of racist practices that's at the time. A, that's astonishing. You know, yeah. um, part of the area where I and uh, one, of our, one of our colleagues, Dylan Fagan, is from in Tennessee is, uh, has a huge population of uh, Lebanese immigrants who have, who have left. I think Lebanon was at least in name ruled by the Ottoman Empire until that collapse around, uh, what, post-World War I, 1918-ish. Uh, and I think I've heard some of I, – I have to listen to this. I think I've heard something that might qualify in this genre. That's bizarre to me. And I mean, there's all kinds. It's not. There's all kinds of music in it. There's party songs. Uh-huh. There are heartbreak songs, uh, and there's fantastic singing and oud playing and things that you don't that I don't really have the vernacular to describe. But we we interview in this episode, uh, and really where I, it, all of the inspiration for it came from is um, a gentleman named Ian Nagoski who is in Baltimore and does reissue records of this stuff, literally sometimes pulls them out of the trash. I, I, I've, I've seen pictures of some of these records that he has that are so abused and does everything he can to salvage them, to save them, to learn as much as he can about the performers. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can't find anything. Sometimes you get lucky. And to spread the word about it. So it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic interview uh, mm-hmm. that, that's part of that. And the music in it is... It's some of my favorite music now. I would love to hear it. And don't have to take our word for it. Uh, you can tune in and check out this music yourself. And that's the thing. I mean, what you're going to get with this show is the the conceit of the show is such a cool one, but it also allows for such a broad range of topics, which I think is really important. Even for a show like what we do, like our only linchpin is that these stories are in some way bizarre, strange, or ridiculous or hilarious. And so that gives us like kind of carte blanche to like go in all kinds of different directions. Similarly with your show, um, very different show, but very similar heart in terms of just like being fascinated by things and wanting to get answers to why things play out the way they do in history and just kind of, I think anyone that is into this show, even remotely, is going to be very much into your show as well. To me, it's a, it's a, there's something about it, and please take this for the profound compliment it is, that reminds me of uh, the free associative nature of the film Waking Life, uh, the way that it it connects in this uh, very, very intentional but uh, dreamlike state you know what i mean I, this is this is one of the podcasts that um i i hear a ton of shows but this is one of the ones that comes with a very new uh, and unique voice and and i mean that sincerely you can compare me to richard linkletter anytime <laughs> i'm fine with that so it looks like we're going to uh we're going to have to save our our 
our own uh, explorations of things that came and went for another day. But shout out to Pizzeria Chips. I miss you if you're listening. If a, defi- a big demo of our show is uh, extinct. Sentient pizzeria chips? Yeah, extinct yeah. potato chips. That's terrifying. That gained sapience, yeah. I was going to talk about Betamax tapes that mm-hmm. were only literally killed. Uh, production was killed by Sony like in 2016. And I believe they stopped distributing the players and recorders of Betamax tapes only a couple of years before that. But that used to be kind of the like go-to for high-resolution news footage and archiving. And now I actually have a stack of Betamaxes on my desk right now that I'm trying to find a place that can transfer them digitally. And there are folks that still have them, whether they're news agencies or like uh, companies that specialize in digitizing your family memories. That's big business now because of this nature of ephemera. And not only is the medium uh, antiquated now, the way of playing it back is gone or much more scarce. And that's that you have a, a really great trailer for your show that's all about answering machine messages and how that used to be Ooh. such a cultural thing that people would do. And it was important to leave a really good message. And just the idea of these things that kind of came and went, left an impression and now it's almost this kind of like specter that like hangs over society and it's really interesting and I'm looking forward to hearing more from uh, Ephemeral with Alex Williams. I'm going to uh, I'm going to save that I have this great list uh, that I'm going to save and post on our Facebook page later for Ridiculous Historians because I did an okay job just mentioning pizzerias it's really hard not to just immediately start talking about them so I'm just going to like mention some things that left and then we'll we'll pick it up later. So check us out on our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. You should be able to find Ephemeral wherever you find your uh, favorite podcasts like Ridiculous History and so on. In the meantime, Alex, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the show. Actually, uh, another uh, started with a peek behind the curtain. Let's end with one. Uh, our office actually closed a few hours ago and we were able to convince you to, to stay over and take this strange journey with us. You know, before I, I feel like I'd be remiss to not mention that Ridiculous History was the first show that I helped make at That's the very true. beginning. Yeah. It was it was the three of us at yeah. the very, very beginning of it. And Alex, I'm not sure if you know this or not. You've got so much on your plate. We thank you at the end of every episode for I the wonderful that. theme that you composed. <laughs> so now we can do our little thank yous and we can do it in person. Thanks to Alex Williams who composed our theme and uh, for being here today for an interview. Uh, I, I did know that you th- – and I very much appreciate yes, that. Thank yeah. you. We, we are big fans of thanking people on this show. And also – like to thank super producer Ramsey Ram Jams Yunt. Thank you so much for saving the show, Ramsey. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely, our pleasure. Thanks to super producer Casey Pegram here in spirit, not forgotten, gallivanting around Paris right now, living his, living his best second life. Um, and thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, you know, also here in spirit. Thanks to uh, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, as well as our research associate, Gabe L., who desperately needs a nickname, so send some suggestions our way. And ben, thanks to you for always being a friend and a confidant. Down that road, back again. You know the drill. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to you as well, Noel. Uh, We are gone for today. This ends our episode, but not our show. Uh, You can also find us on our aforementioned Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us at Instagram. Uh, You can also find our weird personal shenanigans, misadventures, and uh, malarkey on our personal Instagrams. I am at Ben Bolin. I actually just changed my handle. I am now at HowNowNoelBrown. And where can they check out Ephemeral on the uh, the social medias, Alex? At Ephemeral Show. 
We'll see you next time, folks. Bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.